Hey there! I'm Byron. And I'm Char. Welcome to Barefoot, Barefoot to Emmaus. Alright, let's get started. This is our first podcast, our first time ever trying to make a podcast, so... We're flying pretty low. And we're excited. Um, so, this is our pilot, I guess. We like to say that Jesus is our pilot, but this might be the, the second alternative. Wasn't pilot pilot? <laughs> we got a lot of pilots on our show. Pontius Pilate. So the purpose of this podcast, for Byron and myself is to explore the deep theological themes that we resonate with in our souls as we explore through our seminary education, as well as their intersectionalities with a very abundantly rich and nuanced world that we live in. Yeah, I think we're very theological people in general. And a big part of this, Char came up with the idea of doing a podcast mostly as a way of remembering, uh, keeping tabs on what we're learning, uh, maybe how it's changed or will change over the course of our education. And the theme that I'm carrying, I'm walking into this with, is something that I learned about the way that J.R.R. Tolkien started his process of writing The Lord of the Rings, because he wrote it for himself. And I think, Char, we're doing this for ourselves. Um, if you like it, that's great. Uh, we hope you do. Absolutely. We are, we are co-creators with oh. our ultimate creator. Yeah. So as we think about this podcast, this is something that resonates a lot with me, to be aware of who we are hmm. stepping into this space. Mm -hmm. So Byron, do you want to share a little bit about the lens that you bring into this space? I bring a lot of things in with me as I think theologically. So yeah, we'll, we'll just introduce ourselves a little bit. You can get to know us. We can just talk about lenses and uh, viewpoints and things. So I grew up um, in a Christian family, a fourth generation missionary kid. And that is probably my strongest lens. Um, I see the world through a Christian, honestly, Protestant mostly, um, paradigm. Um, other ones. I am gay, uh, more specifically bi. So um, an understanding of uh, sexuality, gender identity. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a cisgender male. So a sensitivity and awareness of those topics is something I bring with me. Uh, in college, I spent so much time, and even before that, doing uh, science. Uh, I did oceanography, which is just a phenomenal area of study. And so I really, especially uh, through environmentalism, uh, I have a science lens, a sense mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. crossing boundaries, crossing bridges, um, reconciliation. That's a big thing that I just feel connected to. That's what I got off the top of my head, things that I carry with me. Char, got some things? Yeah, you know, for myself, the biggest lens that I bring into 
my theology is what I like to call a liberationist praxis. There have been many strands of liberation theology throughout history, most notably in Latin America in the 1950s and on. Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez of Peru is, is known for publishing the seminal work, A Theology of Liberation. And James Cone of the United States publishing many works actually on, on black theology as, as a liberation theology. There have been liberation theology movements in South Africa during apartheid and other parts of the world in different points of history. But to me, the, the core resonance behind all of these theological excursions is an understanding of God, creator, source, spirit, as being the redemptive and unifying force of our reality. That wherever there is division, there is a gaping hole that creator seeks to heal. Hmm. And that we as the followers and people in relationship with creator, however our relationship looks like, we are harmed in our humanity and in our spirituality by any division and we find fullness and actualization through that healing. So that looks like a lot of different things. It looks like racial justice, economic justice. It looks like a structural gaze at the inequalities that persist in our world from a theological lens to look at how the God who advocates for the oppressed and marginalized, the one as, as Gutierrez says, has already made a preferential choice for the poor. That is the lens that I bring in as intersectional as I can make it. And I'm constantly learning and being humbled by, by new facets of liberationist praxis that I was previously blinded to. I try to keep an open gaze and I try to move humbly and, and openly through that process. And in fact, before we go any further in that way, I want to acknowledge that Byron and I are sitting here recording this podcast on Duwamish land, unceded land of the Dupduash people. That's their name in their, in their local tongue. And as we enjoy this process of reflecting on our learning and reflecting on our individuality and collectivity, the experience of being us through our theology, it must go named and remain a center point in our thought. The people who are here before us, that our people, as we are both white men, both white cis men, colonized and displaced from their land. And benefited from doing that. Absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, I think something, as long as we're confessing, that's a, a Christian concept. We're recording this on technology that like, is mined from rare earth metals, potentially mm -hmm. in China, potentially in other places in Africa, maybe by people who are probably underpaid. Um, we're sitting nice and warm, a lot of yeah. enslaved labor in that. There's privilege. There's, Char, you bring up the idea of contexts, particularly through a liberationist lens. 
Um, and I don't know if anyone else knows, it's helpful for context, but we're sitting in Seattle, Washington, um, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. We're both doing classes online. All of these things will inevitably affect our perspectives and our experiences of everything we're doing right now. As this is our pilot, we are going to both go into our story to some degree so that you can have the reflection upon who it is that is creating this space. Mm -hmm. Byron, would you like to share a little bit about how you came to be theologically minded? How about that as a framing question? Hmm. I like it. Well, back in my day. Nah, just kidding. But um, <clears throat> I always start my uh, life story to some extent. I think that's that's this and char feel free to hop in with questions or whatever i like the idea of a conversation um, i always start this story with my grandparents mm -hmm. in, in essence my great-grandparents as i said i'm a fourth generation uh missionary or missionary kid at very least and so my great-grandfather uh went up and down the pacific northwest coast uh, working with indigenous people quite a long time ago. I know very little about that. I know that any interactions, as Char pointed out, with indigenous people has a high degree of probability of being somewhat problematic. So still, that's that's part of my legacy. And in many ways, that affected uh, his kids. So my grandmother married my grandfather, and they decided to be missionaries in Central uh, East Africa. So my parents uh, and my grandparents on the other side did the same. Um, they, they responded to a call because there was a man in South America who was killed while doing mission work. There's a movie and book written about it called The End of the Spear or Tip of the Spear. Uh, my grandparents heard the story of that man dying for his faith and that is what motivated them to go do mission work wow <laughs> strong convictions yeah so then my parents on both sides of my grandparents did that same thing in central east africa and the community of uh white people at the time uh specifically white missionaries was pretty small so both my parents went to rift valley academy rva in Kenya, and they met, and they Was fell in love. An international school or a missionary school? I think more of an international school. Okay. At that point, most of the people there were missionaries. Anyway, so they met, and they both had strong convictions, and they went into the mission field as well. And my parents went into Yemen and started, oh, they did this really cool thing, um, Radio companies from Europe had been broadcasting the gospel into um, that, what is it, the 1040 window on unreached people groups. So Yemen um, was just recovering from a civil war. And so people from the outside were allowed in for the first time. And my parents went in and they were like secret agents delivering Bibles to people who had been listening on the radio and had become Christians, but couldn't tell anyone. Um, so my, my parents would disguise themselves as like hikers and walk into these random villages and ask around and say, oh, do you know where such and such a person is? 
And they'd be like, yeah, he's over there. And they find this person because they had written in of like, hey, I really want a Bible. So my mm-hmm. parents went and did discipleship and things like that. Um, so my two older siblings were born in, they were the first Westerners born in reunified Yemen in the late 80s. So that was cool. Both my parents had gotten some sort of education, so that's important to acknowledge. My mom had gone to seminary, and my dad, he had a master's degree in education and comparative world religions and all sorts of cool things. Um, so then my older sister was born, and she had some disabilities, so that's, that's a factor of my family that affects my uh, perception of the world. And that really st- was the first thing that started to rock my parents' faith. You know, the idea of how can bad things happen in my own family while I'm serving God with such passion. So my older sister was born with holes in her diaphragm, diaphragmatic hernia. Maybe there were other things there too, but that led to prolonged deoxygenation of her brain. And so she, though she's a couple years older than me, functions somewhat perpetually at the level of about an eight or nine-year-old, maybe seven or eight-year-old, in terms of math, reading comprehension, emotional regulation, things like that. She is also one of the most friendly and She's wonderful. <laughs> amazing people in the world. Um, childlike faith is definitely one of the things I've learned from her. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that, that rocked my parents' world. And so they, so I was born in America. Me and my younger brother were born in the U.S. And I'm the only one in my family to have been born in a hospital. Before I was one, we moved to Palestine because why not? My parents still wanted to do, you know, missionary things. So I've been talking for like four minutes, more than that maybe, and I just got to the point where I was born. So I owe so much to my parents and grandparents. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants in many ways. And the fact that they were all Christians with enough personal dedication and like motivation to go do stuff about it. So that was cool. So I was born, we moved to Palestine, Bethlehem more specifically. I went to uh, an Arabic-speaking preschool. So I, I say I'm ESL, English is a simultaneous language. Um, I have since lost almost all of my Arabic, but I have a pretty good accent. So that's nice. Yeah, I mean, I did all the typical, like, late 90s Christian little boy things. I went to Awanas, I memorized Bible verses. Um, I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was five years old. Can you tell us what Awanas is? Awana is a, uh, like a church program, like a Sunday school Boy Scouts type of thing. Mm -hmm. You earn badges for memorizing Bible verses and doing charity work and stuff. Um, It was great when I was little. I haven't kept up with it at all. I know that some of those organizations can tend to be a little problematic. Um, This is also the late 90s. And evangelicalism was starting to like feel the feel the negative impacts of its sins. This is all, all over in this Palestine. is yeah. This is all in Bethlehem still. Um, Let me ask you a question. Yes. What was your perspective on your parents' mission work as a child? Um. I mean, as a kid, it just seemed normal. It mm-hmm. seemed like this is what people that was do. Whole frame of reference. All right. I mean, people, we were reading the Bible all the time and we were talking about Paul as a tent maker and his mission journeys. And I'm like, yeah, this is what Christians do. Paul being an apostle of Jesus. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it was always, you know, I, 
nothing changed when I became a Christian, quote unquote, accepted Jesus into my heart. I prayed the same amount. I served in my church the same amount, doing all of the same things. Um, I didn't feel any big emotional thing, uh, but I obviously had some uh, pretty strong motivation behind it. Uh, my sister, had, she's a little older than me, and by that point, we were pretty equal in our like maturity, academic stuff. We were in the same class uh, a lot of the time. And she had accepted Jesus into her heart. Um, and I saw how happy it made my mom. <laughs> so <laughs> I did the same. Like you know, good old respectable child. Right thing for the wrong reasons. I'm a middle child. What can I say? Uh, my younger brother had not been born yet. Uh, no, he had just been born, actually. He's five years younger than me. So my mom, seeing through my five-year-old little ruse, said, you can wait a little while. And she made me wait three days. And she didn't tell me she was going to make me wait three days. She just said no <laughs> and made and waited till I brought it up again. And I kept bringing it up. So she was like, mm, okay. And so we said no to you accepting Jesus. Interesting. Oh, uh, yeah. That's what spicy. It's what, what turned me gay, mom. Just kidding. <laughs> Love you. So one of the things that I got growing up in the Middle East was an understanding of the Bible through a Middle Eastern context, mm, right? There's, yeah. there's so many stories that just make so much more sense if you're Jewish, big surprise, <laughs> you know, or if, if you're Arab, the concept of Middle Eastern hospitality, the concept of really how small that region is. We're in Seattle and the, the distance between like Nazareth and Jerusalem isn't much farther than like Everett to Seattle. Yeah. Right? Like this idea of Jesus, like walking everywhere. It's like, oh, I get it. Um, so there was a believability to the Bible. Um, my dad was also an archaeologist. So, you know, there's archaeological evidence that the city of Jericho, that the walls fell outward, which it's like fascinating that historical evidence corroborates the Bible. So that definitely affected my theological lens, since a lot of the work of theologians is to in some ways verify, in some ways do some apologetics, in some ways just talk about. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. Yes, to apologize. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, an apology is, it's a Greek word. Give a defense. The second intifada, the second civil war between Israel and Palestine, really was probably the next major life event. And it revealed to me as a little kid that the world is still pretty messed up um so there were bullets coming through our windows and we had to leave to the neighboring country of jordan and i just kind of went with the flow it didn't seem that surprising to me um, my parents seemed to have faith that we'd be all right and we generally were um we were working with so in in yemen my parents were handing out bibles to people and doing discipleship in uh palestine and uh jordan we were working with South Sudanese refugees, so people in uh, Muslim-controlled South Sudan who had similarly become Christians, and then because of that, their entire life was forfeit, right? Their families would torture them to give up Christ. They would, and these people had to flee for their lives with nothing. Um, and with very little information about who and what Jesus was, they uh, came to the Holy Land. They came to the place where it happened wow. um, because they wanted to be pastors and they wanted to go back 
Hmm. So there were some amazing people who we who we worked with, and my siblings and I like got to hang out with their kids all the time. Um, my favorite my favorite song from that era. We went to this. We went to Sudanese church, and it uh, the favorite song was Jesus is the winner man, the winner man, the winner man. Jesus is the winner man, the winner man all the time. Boom, boom, the winner man, 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 the winner man. Jesus is the winner man, the winner man all the time. Which, of course, was hilarious as a little kid because Jesus was a wiener man. <laughs> that was what made you gay. <laughs> That's also, you know, really, it makes it makes all the sense in the world. We have the answer here, folks. Got it. Um, okay, so then fast forwarding, my parents were doing all this mission work and stuff, and then 9-11 happened. And I know people our age, I'm 25, uh, born in 1995, are, people our age, like, have this cultural memory of like, oh, I know exactly where I was when this happened, and I don't, and I was in the Middle East at the time. <laughs> so that tells you the amount of America focus mm, that, mm. you know, it wasn't a big world event. Yeah. It was in some ways it affected airline traffic and stuff um but you know people were afraid every every time we would come back to the states to visit my grandparents or something in portland or seattle um our friends in uh the u.s would be so happy that we you know came back safe it was like oh all the terrorists over there and stuff um and they were they were really worried and we were like what are you talking about um and then anytime we went to the states from the middle east we uh, all our middle eastern friends were like oh are you passing through o'hare like that's in chicago you know you'll be shot up you'll be killed <laughs> by the violence there and both scenarios are of course as ridiculous as yeah. as each other um so our our um church was a was a pretty big mega church in Gresham, Oregon called Good Shepherd. And I have no problem saying this because the truth is better than hiding things and people do stuff to themselves. Truth shall set you free. Yeah, this was a church that spent $10,000 getting a bigger flagpole because the Burger King next door no. had, had a higher flag than that. <laughs> right? This oh, this is where cringy. What's his name? Tim Keller? No. Um, anyway, like this was a hub for evangelicalism mm. in the in the late '90s, um, and so they called us back from the Middle East for being anti-American because we spoke Arabic and because we were working with Muslims. Mm. My dad wrote them a letter saying, "So number one, I thought that was the point. Number two, there once was this man. There once was this man who was a terrorist." He had letters from his religious organization to murder Christians on site. Mm. He already had. He had authorized it, um, looked on while other people murdered Christians in front of him, um, and thought he was doing a great thing. And then at some point, he had a spiritual encounter. Um, and then Jesus changed his name to Paul, and he went on to write most of the New Testament. Right? The idea of w what is nationalism? compared to the kingdom of heaven. So that was a huge moment for me. Um, in many ways, my grandparents, um, they had some different ideas. You know, my 
parents, in my experience, always had a very healthy approach to alcohol, for instance, had a healthy approach to parenting, all sorts of great things that I thought they did really well. Um, there were some little things, you know, not to, not to blame them for stuff. It was the late nineties, but like, we weren't allowed to play Pokemon for instance, cause they were monsters and monsters, monsters were demons. That was my whole childhood right there. Yeah. So yeah, what did I miss out on? It's probably why I'm gay. Um, <laughs> just kidding. You'll find there's a theme here. Um, I'm not that gay. I'm just bi. <laughs> it's like the half and half cream. <laughs> um, middle child, bi, all, you know, multiple cultures. This is a theme for me. Um, my name's even Byron. Anyway, um, the irony was lost on my parents when I came out as bi. Uh, it's okay, they got over it. It's a joke that ages pretty well. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, so then moving forward, like this was a, you know, what, what, I, what I mean by my grandparents is like there were some different ideas and uh, it's tough. They like spoke against us uh, our, you know, we had applied to do different mission work and, uh, they, my grandfather, um, like sent a letter to the mission agency we had applied for and was like, Hey, don't hire him. And if someone's dad tells you not to hire them, you're not going to hire them. Um, there were some other issues and stuff. It was a hard time for my family. Um, and so we... Gosh. It's, it, was a, it was a strong issue, and my grandparents, I mean, bless them on both sides, well, they are also products of their, of their time, their generation. Um, and I've learned so much from them, right? Again, the ability to acknowledge difficulties is an important and mature thing. Um, but it was difficult, and, well, I mean, one of the difficult things is that they really didn't acknowledge um, the issues that they had caused. Um, you know, there's a lot of intent versus impact there. Like, oh, well, I didn't mean to do that. Mm -hmm. mm, okay. Um, anyway, so we had a house uh, in Portland and we lost that property during the like recession. And so it was just like bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. Um, and so we moved back to the States. I did middle school there and it was a huge culture shock for me. Uh, I was a little kid, you know, I knew some Bible verses, but this is where I kind of stopped identifying as a Christian. Mm. Um, Christians were now, at this point, the enemy. And juicy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were the ones who had ruined my world. Yeah. Right? I had given everything, um, my family had given everything to following the good news of Jesus, and it was churches that had messed that up. Um, and my dad um, had a really hard time reconciling that with the idea of a good and loving God. Um, and so that was also a big thing. You know, my dad is such a theologically minded person with so much information, but I don't think he has a, what I would call a loving relationship with God. And I think God treats us all differently. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he might have, uh, I don't know, a relationship more like Moses at the end of his life. And I might have a relationship more like John, the beloved at some point, you know, <laughs> the we... one whom Jesus loved. Mm. Uh, anyway, so all sorts of little things like that. Uh, so we moved to Guam after a little while. Um, I went to an Episcopal high school uh, and middle school, and that was also interesting. So like chapel was a mandatory thing, but again, America particularly is so reactionary to the idea of individualism, right? Things like that. It's so reactionary to the idea of being told what to do. So as a missionary, my whole life was like, hey, 
have you thought about Jesus? But the reaction to that was so negative and strong that I stopped doing that at all. Um, and in middle school, you know, I didn't give God one thought. That's, I don't know, that's not necessarily true. Um, you know, I'd still have theological conversations with my dad, but he had a pretty negative view about some stuff. Um, so, you know, God was a very theoretical thing at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't reading my Bible, really. Um, I, again, I knew a lot of my Bible, so it didn't feel like a necessary thing. Perhaps a certain passive agnosticism? Um, yeah, there wasn't any doubt of... I mean, I knew God, and I, you know... Just it, apathy? No, not even... Well, yes, apathy, but not... Apathy of, like, action. You know, it, it was a personal... It was it was a, a conscious relationship, or a conscious understanding that God exists, yeah, yeah. and, you know, I'm saved, quote-unquote. Um... But, I, yeah, I didn't do anything about it. Check the box, go on. Sure. Um, and at the same time, you know, my parents were a little jaded from the idea of church, but um, they never stopped being Christians. Um, in terms of, you know, Middle Eastern hospitality and generosity, there was never a time, there still hasn't been a time longer than, um, you know, six months in my entire life where we haven't had some other person living in our house. Um, just as a, as a sign of hospitality someone who needed something um yeah so my parents were very generous in that in that sense uh bit us in the butt a couple times um yeah that's a story for another time but uh so then i start realizing i'm by crushes on the girls in my class which is normal Can crushes, you give us a timestamp? uh late middle school mm-hmm. uh late middle school um, you know, the word bi-curious. Yeah. The concept of being gay didn't even exist mm. in the Middle East. Nonetheless, America during, I mean, not for a, a child, during the uh, late 90s. Um, so, you know, and, and kids don't have a sexuality. Right? Gender identity, sure, but I'm cis, so no issues there. Um, so the idea, yeah, I mean, gay was just a mean word to say to someone you didn't like like oh that's so gay or like oh did you see that teacher like he's probably gay <laughs> um so the idea of being gay was so mm. undesirable mm. um and then of course then i started to realize that oh there's something about spirituality that's at odds with being with being queer um as it relates to certain biblical passages as well yeah and I didn't do much of that work until late, not even high school. I don't think I had even started getting back into the Bible. The thing that started me getting back into the Bible and back into into God um, was I graduated high school. And, you know, they've got like the Spanish award for kids that are good at Spanish and the biology award for kids that are good at biology. And it was an Episcopal school. So they also had an award that I didn't know about called the Bishop's Award, which was for a student who exemplified... Um, good Christian ethics. Character? Yeah, sure, something like that. So I got that. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, God has been using me despite me. Great, good to know. Um, And so then uh, my parents moved to Ethiopia. I stayed with a friend of mine um, for six months uh, until I graduated with the IB diploma. Um, Yeah, I mean, think of the idea of thinking big, thinking contextually. 
was helpful, again, for theological thinking. Um, I guess one thing to mention is that in middle school and high school, the idea of like the atrocities of God was something that was also, you know, to be worked through mm. the, the genocides yeah, yeah. and, um, just kind of the reactionary meanness of God of the old Testament. And even, you know, some of the, some of the not crassness, but harshness of Jesus. So doodly do. Anyway, I graduate, I get into UW, I want to study oceanography and theater, I think I want to go be, you know, the next Bill Nye the Science Guy, um, but maybe less... I remember those days. Yeah, a little less of a, uh, of a atheistic jerk. I'm not saying that atheists are jerks, I'm saying that Bill Nye is a jerk. Um, and uses, you heard it here first, folks. And uses his atheism as a means to do it, much in the same way I might mention that Christians use their Christianity to be jerks. 100%. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to be a nice Bill Nye. You know, or a Jacques Cousteau or something. Um, so, then, then I started getting involved in my church. Uh, I went to um, a church called University Presbyterian Church, UPC. Uh, again, not going to hide it. Um, they did some things. And in many ways, I'm so grateful to that church. Presbyterianism kind of found me. I loved it. Uh, very intellectual. The idea of being able to have thoughts about your faith and being able to dig into the Bible with integrity and all of these things um, was important and big for me. Um, so I knew, though, that there was a problem, right? Now I was getting into the issues of like, oh, the Bible actually says some things that like can't be gay, blah, 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 kill them, you know, some pretty... On the, on the side, a little casual. Cash, cash, you know, Leviticus 20. Um, so then I started reading, and I started thinking, and I came out to my cousin, I came out to my aunt. I hadn't dreamed of coming out to my... I had come out to my uh, high school director, uh, theater director. She was like a mama to me. Um, That's beautiful. Yeah, it is. And... So it was important, obviously. So there's a, th there's a thing that... Um, us gaybies say sometimes um, that we don't do theology out of a sense of interest or even passion or devotion. We do theology out of a sense of survival. Um, right? I cannot, according to the faith that I was brought up with, I cannot be a Christian and uh, gay at the same time. Bye. Um, I, you know, risk the possibility of going to hell like that's pretty intense and I, I had in high school I, I guess I should have mentioned this I did go through a, a long zone of you know trying to pray the gay away not specifically from like a biblical mandate but just a cultural sense of like yeah. oh it's clear that this is not okay yeah that survival mentality makes it a liberationist praxis ho, 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 ho. are you claiming my no no my we, can, we can both share that <laughs> as a subset of yours um there's, there's a power to having your identity be rooted in your pursuit of liberation. In a lot of ways, as a very privileged individual, I don't have that. And it's coming from a place of compassion and empathy, um, but not from a place of necessity or survival like you're, you experienced and, yeah. and still experienced. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I started reading um, books... So I, I, the reason I didn't come out to my parents, and they, you know, they, they handled it well once I knew how to have the conversation and share it with them, um, and I did when they came back from Ethiopia. 
um, in my second year of college. Um, I hadn't shared it with them because they're both so brilliant and strong in their faith and, and strong-willed and intellectual, just all sorts of things. Um, that if I had come out to them when I was 15 or 14 or like 12 when I started noticing, um, I they would have tried to change me. Um, and they might have been very successful at making me think that I could yeah. change. And you can win an argument even if you're wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and I just realized every time I... I had never, by the way, felt any condemnation from God or the Holy Spirit or anything about queerness. It was always just a social thing that was presented as undesirable. But I had to do the work. I felt compelled to do the work. I didn't have to do the work. That's a that's an important thing. If you're LGBTQ+, and you don't want to read tons of books and get the equivalent of a master's degree in LGBTQ+ theology... LGBTQ+, and Christian. And Christian. Or even LGBTQ+, I've dated... Um, last person I dated uh, was a trans man who uh, wasn't a Christian, and the work that I had done in Christian circles uh, was helpful to him. That's awesome. As a defense against the haters, the the haters who use the Bible as a weapon. Yeah. Right? There's a reason they're called the clobber passages. It's a heavy book too, <laughs> especially mine. All the notes in the bottom. Um, <laughs> So hardback because the, yeah, because the narrative around queerness is, comes from a, it's given ammo by Christianity or by a bad interpretation of the Bible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but, but if you are that intersection of identities, you don't have to get an equivalent of a master's degree in order to be valid. Um, you are valid. You are entirely loved by God. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Um, now that's not an excuse to not work on the areas of sin in our lives, right? Like if I have an issue with lying and I'm gay, like that doesn't mean I don't have to work on not lying. Um, and it, it's sensitive. Um, Justin Lee, uh, a queer theologian author, um, has this premise about the idea of confession and whether or not you know, if you're constantly attacked, then your ability to genuinely confess is limited. It is more limited than it should be. Mm. Um, That's fascinating. You know, so it gets to this area of like LGBTQ plus people need to deal with some issues, right? There's there's like issues of body shaming in the LGBTQ plus culture. There's issues of drug use and... Um, misogyny even there's issues of racism and we don't get a free pass just because we're marginalized in one way um so anyway small small uh lecture over i really only had the space to learn that once i felt like i was not fighting for my survival anymore yeah. right um i don't have the mental space to uh, i don't know to try to keep track of all other modes of oppression while I'm, tr yeah, trying to validate my own existence. Um, and that's tough. So, anyway, so then I started, I just, I just devoured everything I could get my hands on. Um, I went to a couple queer Christian conferences. My dad came with me. God bless his heart. Um, we started having conversations. Um, my mom came with me a couple years later. Um, 
they thought uh, i i can't speak to their to their process that perhaps a another uh we can do a podcast on coming out um but yeah just every time i dug into the bible with an open mind um of like what is it that god actually wants then i discovered that actually god is bigger more loving more complex and more beautiful and inclusive and stuff than i thought um you know i i would go in there's a there's a i would discover a new thing that i think like oh this could be like a nail in the coffin of like why i actually can't be gay and then i do a little bit of research and i'm like oh wait it's totally fine you know the hebrew word toivach doesn't mean just like ew it's gross to be gay it's like mm, it strongly indicates that the action that it's commenting on was actually used as like a demon temple worship practiced by the neighboring canaanites so like that's the reason why it's no bueno um so anyway theology just thinking bigger about stuff um and thinking more educatedly about stuff um and at this point that kind of took over my life not just in in queerness but you know science right what is what is the theological view of creation and what does that mean about our ability to take care of the planet and each other um so you know queerness is not the only thing i make lots of jokes about gay stuff because it's low-hanging fruit um because it's so fun now i can say it's fun um it was it was a tough battle for a long time um but yeah then i was like "Mm." i started doing ministry stuff and people were like byron you have some gifts. You should maybe go to seminary. And so then I applied, and now I got in. And now I'm thinking... That's it? Um, yeah. You're just people telling you to go, and you went? I mean, I felt strongly that I agreed with them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I'm a, you know, I, I'm a very cautious person. Yeah. Arrogance is a, is a tough sin to deal with, and so I don't want to, you know, presume or take up a ton of space or doing things, right? So it was, it was the confirmation, it was the affirmation. of like, yeah, I, th- I think that there's a book that needs to be written by a bi person with an international Middle Eastern perspective. Um, a lot of the books, I mean, here's a big thing, a lot of the, the things that have been written and a lot of the work that I've done, I've, I've spent seven years doing apologetics, right? Christian apologetics ab- around queerness. But as soon as as soon as like I can get it through my own head or other people's heads, it's like you're not going to hell because of who you want to kiss, right? Like, as soon as I could get that through my head, then the real work starts. You know, then we need to figure out. Okay, then what are the ministry needs of LGBTQ plus people? I love that. Um, so, it's a good framework. Yeah, I recognize that I was good at that, and other people were recognizing that I was good at it. Um, Oh, back to UPC for a second. They were doing some really amazing stuff, especially with um, anti-racist work um, to the best of their capacity, I think. And um, um, they were doing some not great stuff with LGBTQ plus stuff. Um, So anyway, they, they made some mistakes where they just like kicked out all of the queer and queer affirming leadership of the youth program. Um, they forced out the middle school and high school directors, both of whom were affirming 
the only female pastor on staff who was affirming left because of similar issues. Um, yeah, like they, they took a hard left turn. Right, um, right turn? I don't want to politicize it. They, they <laughs> took a hard turn in a direction. Um, you know, and they're dealing with the repercussions of that. And other people are dealing with the repercussions of that, right? I am emotionally dealing with the repercussions of my church having effectively forced me out. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially a year before I started at a Presbyterian seminary. Um, you know, so that, that was a big, that was a big thing in my theological understanding because it's not just theology, right? It's also a relationship, you know? So what work did I have to do to reconcile my own broken heart with the love of God and the church and all of these things? I had done apologetics for so long that I had missed out on the relationship of God and the Holy Spirit, um, and Jesus. Um, and I had a pretty swassome mentor to help me through that. I had a pretty swassome, uh, best friend to help me through that. Who's, who's that? Oh, um, uh, you, you probably know him. He, uh, he's about as tall as you, uh. Well, hey, hey. sounds like a good looking guy. Didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, so that, that kind of brings me to the present, right? Um. I, one of the things, you know, we, we can talk, oh, it might be great to do a podcast one time about like our individual statements of faith. Ooh, all these ideas. Um, I like that. Uh, and once we get all famous and like people are watching this or listening to it, uh, you can like contact us on Instagram or something and send in your, send in your ideas. Thanks, Hinia. I know you are our only listener. (laughs) Prob's true. Um, well, they're saying I got distracted. You're saying you, um, you've, you've come up to the present moment. You're in seminary. You know, actually, if... Oh, big questions. Yeah, okay. So uh, yeah, I've got these ideas of, like, the unchallengeable challenge... The, the, un, the unchallengeable challengeableness of God. Mm. Now I sound like Scott, uh, love Scott those, Ronholtz. Love those paradoxes. <laughs> yeah. Um, except that you were accepted even though you're unacceptable. Thanks, Scotty G. Um, anyway... <laughs> All sorts of things. Um, I'll, I'll wrap this up quickly on my end because I really want to hear about your story. Um, that we can ask any question of God. We can bring any doubt before God. Mm. Um, you know, we were, we were doing a class this morning that was really tearing apart. I, you know, I, I have a pretty broad, uh, nuanced view of the construction of the Old Testament. But even then, we were reading a book that was like tearing apart this understanding of even the concept of what Israel is. As, as a, as a like, tribal group, the, the Israelites, the Jews, um, during the canonization of Scripture. And, oh, like, does the fact that part of the Old Testament come from, you know, neighboring religious groups like Mesopotamia or Egypt, like, does that invalidate the reality of God's story with us? No, technically no. You know, does the idea of... You know, the, the Bible says uh, the world was created in six days and stuff. Does the possibility of God, of God having done it through uh, the beautiful process of evolution um, and the creativity of physics and all of that science, does that change the story? Does it invalidate the story of God? No. Um, anyway, so something that I've, that I've learned theologically is that there is nothing that can attack or discredit God. Um, crank up the heat of your questions as much as you want. 
God will not disappoint you. That's actually my, fa- I'll end with this. That's my favorite Bible verse. Um, and it has two meanings. Romans 10, 11 says, for we know that those who are in God will not be put to shame. Hmm. The other translation is will not be disappointed. And both okay. of those readings is great. Uh, both of those readings are great. Um, if you put your trust in God, you will not be disappointed. And also, shame is not a tool that God tends to use. Um, so that's a nice thing to consider. Now, having said that, of course, the other side of that is if you give your life to Jesus, like, don't expect it to be all rainbows and butterflies. Um, you Carry know, your cross. persecution. And that's, that's more of your uh, wheelhouse anyway. So uh, over to you, Char. You know, that's a good note to end on, but I, I do have one question. <sighs> you threw off my groove. I know, right? No, go for it. So in high school... Coming to the close, you get this Bishop's Award, and yes. you reflect on how people perceive you to be of upstanding, quote-unquote, Christian character, and you think, huh, that maybe, like, if God's been doing that through me already, I should live into that more. It seems like that's one point, and then the next point we hear is your journey of survival as a queer Christian, trying to find your place in a context that oppresses you. Hmm. Uh, I feel like there's a little bit of a gap there as far as your own development. Was it, was it simply holding on to the strings of this identity, but then when you felt oppressed and attacked in that, that you, you sort of like doubled down on its significance to you and you fought for it and in that place it, it gained new life? Um, great question. I, I think the short answer is I loved God more than I was afraid of the persecution or the the negative outcomes of what Christianity often does. Um, and I'm wondering about that because the way you were describing your faith earlier didn't have quite as much of that that love God as much as a you know you had you know some understanding and some respect but not necessarily that relational love at what point would you say that really flourished um i mean it was it was there as a as a nascent kind of back oh what a good word um as a like back burner type of thing for my entire life right i mean my first experiences of faith were i was sitting in an easter service uh in an orthodox church i might have been you know three, four, five, um, and I was just weeping tears of joy at how mm. beautiful God was. Um, I love that. And so that, to some extent, had to have stayed with me. Um, what I was afraid of, and what I'm still afraid of, right? Like, God, do I trust God completely? No, because if God is somehow secretly evil... <laughs> then I don't want to be following God. Yeah, right. That and, and the faith that I had been taught as you know evangel- evangelicalism was so evil. It had A lot of been brokenness. so much brokenness. Um, it had been so, and not probably not intentionally. I mean, this is a bit. This is a big thing. I think evil can be unintentional. Hmm. Um, you know, I experienced that through the lens of queerness. There were tons of people who wanted to, quote unquote, speak the truth in love to me yeah. and, you know, or do conversion therapy. And by doing so, the fruit of that is 
depression, anxiety, self-hate, yeah. suicide, right? Like, not good fruit there. Not good. Thank you, Matthew Vines, for the 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 connection of that image to queerness. Um, thank you, Jesus, for making the uh, the image in the first place. Um, you know, so when I realized that, the, you know, because it, it's interesting, right? I had avoided Christianity, and then as soon as I was identified as a Christian, I perceived that as a good thing. Why? Well, only because the the work that I saw as happening through me was good work, right? I was trying very hard to avoid the pitfalls of Christianity. And so the, if the good things I were doing, I was doing as a middle school, high schooler, could be called Christianity, that meant that I was allowed to be a Christian. Hmm. That meant that the thing... That meant the way of pursuing Christ in the way that I had been without the name of it was valid. Yeah. That pursuing God themselves, 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 whatever, <laughs> is, uh, is valid. And that's then what I wanted, right? How much did I have to love God in order to tenaciously pursue them despite being attacked by the church that represents them? Yeah. So... That's the thing that I think drove me through that transition. Obviously, you always had a love for God as it, as it rings true in your story. Mm-hmm. But I do think there is something really beautiful about how through your oppression, you in some ways gained an even deeper connection and love for God as your lifeline. Mm. Yeah. This was something I learned from a friend of mine named Micah. Um, he said, when I realized I was bi, my heart was broken. Hmm. And then it was broken open. Gosh. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Pretty good. And he may have gotten it from someone else, but, uh, <laughs> but I got it from him. So. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Thanks, Ecclesiastes. So I want to hear from you. All right. Um, yeah. So your your question is, uh, what brought you, what led to your theological lens? Yes, Byron. One of the things I love so much about your story is that you recognize the context that your faith grew up in, both in terms of your family and your geographic environmental context. It affects all of us how we grow up, but many of us don't have the language or perspective to notice that. And so that's something I really appreciate about your story. In my story, there is a role that geography plays. It looks a little different. So I was born in Seattle, Washington, uh, a twin, actually. I was stuck under my mama's rib and I almost died, but, you know, saved by the miracle of modern technology (laughs) and medicine and yeah as a child I was quite socially inept my awareness of other people's emotional experiences and needs and methods of communication amongst people was certainly lacking for example when I was mad at people specifically kids, my sisters, 
um, and any friends, I would bite them. That was, that was, that was how I would express my anger and that led to some uh, upset parents on the other end. But by and large, I didn't have much of a desire for friends either because I had my twin. I have a twin sister. Her name's Hinia. She's the most important person in my life and my second half. And we were always there for each other. We had that special twin bond that meant that there wasn't as much of a sense of lack that, that drives other kids to, to pursue friendship. And so it comes around to our third grade year. We're about nine. And my mother, who is born and raised in Sweden, decides that we as a family should get connected to her culture. We had been over there every summer. My older sister, Emma, she was born in Sweden and Swedish was actually her first language. But for Henia and I, it was a place of summer engagement with our grandparents and our Swedish family, but it wasn't home. And we had always resisted learning the language. And especially this year, as my mom proposed it, it was technically indefinite that we could have stayed there longer than one year, but I was a very stubborn child, still am, and I put my foot down and said no, and that set the limit to one year. So we were there for a third grade year. That was the first major life milestone where Hania and I experienced bullying from students in our class. Can I can I pause you before? Because this is such a big <clears throat> uh, moment in your life. I want to get the Christian theological like context of this. Right, your your parents are Christians. Yes. Yeah, so so I, I grew up in the church. My relationship to faith was nominal. It was status in the sense that uh, my parents are Christian, so I was Christian, and it meant something to me but it really was as is for many kids just passively following your parents to church god was real because that's what i had been told you know i hadn't really critically analyzed it as it would today but here i am in sweden my sister hinia and i were alone in a school where we didn't know anyone we didn't speak the language and as i had mentioned before had no real experience with friendships outside of each other anyway. So socially and culturally and linguistically marginalized in this context. And these two boys who had come from troubled homes where, um, you know, they felt the need to exert their own power to have some semblance of control in their life that had so little control, had picked on other kids prior. And we happened to be the perfect targets coming in with no connections and none of the other kids stepped in to help us because they were relieved that it was no longer them now we told our parents about it and they complained to the teacher but the teacher was a very disempowered woman who didn't feel like she could really engage and so this whole year we had this experience and the emotional violence of being followed home and cussed at and they made jokes about my mom, whom they had never met, and, you know, it, it shouldn't have meant anything, but as a kid, it, it did. It hurt me, 
and they would keep me in the lunchroom, block the door so that I couldn't go out to recess. Just little things that coalesced in a deep-seated sense that I was all alone and that I somehow deserved this experience because why else would it happen? Why else would they be doing this? I didn't have the perspective to understand their hurt at this time and so I thought it must be me. And this is the point where I as a very intense person dove into this effort to grab for myself some sense of self-worth. I created in my mind these pillars of perfection that I pursued to have some semblance of being above that person who was worth being bullied. And these pillars were academic health, both in terms of food and exercise, sexuality, and faith. And there may be some that I'm forgetting in this moment, but um, essentially what that meant was in school, I needed to get an A in everything. If I got anything less than that, it was a sign that I was that horrible person, that worthless person that deserved bullying. Mm -hmm. In terms of health, there was this extreme control of what I ate, specifically to not intake that which I considered bad. So things like sugar and butter and other things were off the table and I ended up losing a lot of weight to the point that my parents were concerned that my sister and I were uh, anorexic. I think a better term for it would be orthorexic, but there was definitely an aspect of control that was obsessive and causing a major detriment to my health. With the exercise element, it got so extreme that I literally counted the steps that I took to make sure that my sister wasn't taking more than me. Now this is an aspect that I should share too is, yes, it was internal, but it was also this dual comparison where she was my standard of comparison, that I knew that I was not this worthless person if I was at least at her level. Yet I always felt like I was under her level. And so I always felt like that worthless person. And I continually imbibed that self-loathing. It was a very dark six years of my life. The aspect of sexuality was uh, cultivated from the nucleus of a child who yelled, ew, girls, cuties. So in essence, when, when you are not exposed to external ideas and education, like during sex ed, I would plug my ears and put my head down on the table so I wouldn't hear or absorb anything. My understanding of sex was that it was evil. That kind of tied a little bit to the faith aspect, but it was also internally uh, propagated. And then that girls and boys should be separate because sex is evil. <laughs> and it wasn't that girls were worse than boys or that they're bad, but just that there needed to be this separation. So finally, the aspect of faith. This was the point where my faith started to mean quote unquote more to me. Well, I'm going to jump in because the time scale of this is important, right? You mentioned third grade in Sweden, mm -hmm. but you came back. 
we came back. Thank you for, yeah. So we were there for a year and then we came back. So it was in fourth grade that a lot of this started to unfold in my life. And in many senses, snowball, where it started at one point and it continued to grow. Some of it mellowed out a little bit over time, but for the most part, this was something that continued for the next six years, kind of evolving and developing in its own way, but keeping me as that self-loathing individual with just a sunk self-esteem, no sense of real self-worth. But to the, that aspect of faith, growing up in the church, in, in a Christian church, I had this understanding that this was the right thing. And so when I was perceiving what a good person was, what this ideal person that I should be was, that became one of those pillars of, of perfection. So I would go to church and I would go to youth group and I would listen to all of the spiritual and theological content and do my best to absorb as much of it as possible. And I would hide for the social aspects. Anyway, moving forward to ninth grade. I was involved in this youth group and they had this service trip every summer. In my incoming ninth grade year, I was invited to come on this trip and I refused (laughs) because to me, the idea of being in a group of people that I didn't really know and outside of any context of comfort that I had, essentially forced to be in a pretty social environment was hellish to me. There had been mandatory school camps prior and I would literally hide under my bunk bed and starve myself for the duration of the trip. In part, reminding myself through that process why camps were a horrible thing. So I had no incentive to want to go to these service trips. The following year, this is now the summer after my ninth grade year, summer before 10th grade, yet again, the opportunity comes up to go on this mission trip or this service trip. And this one was local. This was in Seattle. Again, I had no reason to want to go on this trip. However, I felt a push within me. And I had no words at the time to describe what it was. And so I was undeniably confused by this. The language that I would say now is that God was speaking through me. The Holy Spirit was speaking to me. But at the time, I was totally confused, but I actually listened to that voice. And that was one of the most important decisions I've ever made in my life. I listened to that voice and I said, yes. So I signed up for the trip. I convinced my sister Hinea to do so as well. And we were a part of this program now. Prior to the trip, we had a sort of social activity, get to know your small group. I was sitting in the back of the van as we were driving around town. It was a photo scavenger hunt. Just counting the seconds, you know, head out the window, just socially disconnected. Because again, that's that's who I was. Now, fast forward a little bit more to day before the mission trip starts. I get a call from Scott. He, his name has already come up in this podcast. He's important to both of us. He was my youth director for that for that youth group. And then he's also someone that we've served in more recent years up to the present in, in various youth groups. But he gives me a call and he says hey, there's this guy who is no longer able to make it onto the trip. His small group was already pretty small. 
and pretty girl-heavy in, in proportion. Would you be willing to switch into this group? And now this is a group of people that I had never seen. You know, I at least had this other experience of riding and suffering in the back of a car with them. But these, so this is this totally new group. Again, change, discomfort. A group that was more girl-heavy, another aspect that would have been uncomfortable for me. No reason to make this change. But again, I felt that push. I felt that sense inside of me that said, you should do this. And so I said yes. And I remember hanging up the phone and looking up at the ceiling and just thinking, what is going on? I had no idea what was happening to me. Now, the final detail before this trip starts is that there were, the first weekend was group bonding. Then Monday through Friday would be a work week, and then the final weekend would be a reward. It was like a 9-10 day trip. My sister, Hini, and I missed the first weekend because of a soccer tournament. And so we rolled up to the church where we were staying Monday morning, and I was filled with dread. I had this dread that this experience was going to be like third grade all over again, that I was going to come here as the outsider, and I was going to get marginalized and bullied. And I remember taking each step thinking I can still go back. But I arrived at the front of the church and the youth group came rushing out and they came and embraced me and they took my bags up to the room where I'd be staying. Now an important detail here is that physical touch is a major love language for me. And for that reason, as someone who was hiding from love, someone who was punishing themselves through this controlled suffering of self-repression, that I refused any kind of physical contact. Even from my sisters and my family, I would reject hugs. And so for this group of strangers to come rushing out and give me a hug was so far out of my paradigm. And the me at that time absolutely would have rejected it. But there was something about that love that was so pure and, and I would even say holy, that I could only half-heartedly reject it. I, I, I couldn't really <laughs> say no. I would, and so I was stuck in this tumultuous place of being ripped open, this wall, this barrier that I had built carefully around my heart, which I really, in, in retrospect, think was self-protection, you know? We don't, I, I personally don't believe that we do anything to truly destroy ourselves. Our self-destruction is actually a form, a really messed up form of self-preservation in our pain, in our trauma, to prevent ourselves from being vulnerable. Because when we're vulnerable, we can get most hurt. And so if I've already hurt myself and told myself all those lies and done everything that you could possibly do to me, then when you do it, it's not gonna hurt. It's not gonna hurt because I'm already numb. And this experience as they came out and rushed to love on me, forced me open, it forced me into this space of vulnerability again. Vulnerability I'm not sure I had ever really experienced before. And so 
this trip is starting. It's it's Monday morning still, <laughs> and I'm with my new group. This is the first time I'm meeting them, and we're driving out to our service site, and I am just thinking, what is going on? I have no control. I socially continue to keep my distance because, again, this is who I was, but in some profound way, this group was able to make me feel so accepted and loved and still give me that distance. They didn't force me in. They respected who I was and where I was at at that time, but I still felt so loved by them. I honestly believe that in the switching of the group that that was, again, orchestration of, of God to m bring me to this place of healing. Because in that moment, I decided I don't want to keep going on being the same person that I was before. This love that I'm tasting right now is so good. It is so beautiful. I need this in my life. Only problem was I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to welcome that love in. I didn't know how to change who I was. This is the person I've been for half my life now. So we had this other thing element of these trips called one-on-ones. Scott would pair up two people on the trip and they would go off and have an hour to just talk about anything. <laughs> so we had three one-on-ones over the trip. The first one that I had was with someone who's still a dear friend of mine. His name is Ryan Pearson. And I can't overemphasize how every aspect of this trip felt so divinely orchestrated. Because <laughs> Ryan was someone who, like myself at that time, was an outsider and socially awkward. And there was this sense of relief that I felt being around someone who didn't have that sort of forced and fake, I'm going to want to get to know you vibe. <laughs> but was really just kind of sitting in the awkwardness with me. He had snuck his, his phone onto the trip, which was a no-no. And he, he showed me some funny video on his phone because I don't think he knew what to do to talk to this guy who didn't want to talk. And so that, that kind of broke the ice a little bit and we were able to laugh and start to dialogue. And so going into my brain, you know, again, this whole thing about theology being now a big part of my identity, one of these pillars of perfection, I started to talk about the spiritual discipline of fasting. Uh, specifically, not just fasting from food, which is typically in the context that we hear fasting, but um, to give up anything for a certain amount of time to demonstrate and to practice dependence on, on God over that thing. That if there's anything in our life that we cannot give up for God, not saying that we have to give up everything, but if there is anything that we can't give up for God, that is by definition an idol, mm. something that we worship, that we put before God. And so this practice of fasting is, you know, I was as I was talking with him saying, uh, what is something that you can give up what, to, to practice your dependence on God? And so he was talking about how... Um, he felt uh, a little ashamed of how uh, many desserts that he had been eating on the trip. And so he's like, I can, I can give up sweets for this trip. And then I was thinking for myself, what is something that I can give up? And it hit me again, just this, you know, divine little revelation that it was in fact, my comfort zone that I was holding on to and my inability to realize 
what it would look like for me to heal was because I was so desperately attached to my comfort zone as my safety mechanism that I couldn't even conceive of the idea of just going up and talking to someone. That was outside of my imagination. But I had this realization and I decided, again, as the stubborn person that I am, that I would go and talk to people the next day, that I would force myself into these uncomfortable situations to just talk to someone in the youth group. Oh, this is where it started. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day, I'm walking in the foyer of this church and someone passes by and I approach them. I'm going to go talk to them. And last moment, I chicken out. I just, I couldn't do it. I, I got so uncomfortable, so afraid that I, I chickened out. I'm like, okay, I'll get the next one. Next person comes by. I go up to them. Same thing happens. Again, I have this inability, this, this hurdle that I cannot cross. And as this happens again and again, I realize that this is a burden. This is a chain on my ankle that is heavier than I can manage. It is not something that I can overcome on my own. Fast forward to the next one-on-one. -on -one. This again was with someone who was quite socially awkward and actually opened up about some real stuff that he was struggling with. And I felt so respected and trusted in that, that he would first be so vulnerable that I felt like I could share where I was at at this point in the trip. And so I told him what I was struggling with. And he told me, God will bring you an opportunity on a silver platter. That shocked me because his words were prophetic. They were essentially promising that God was going to do something. And I didn't even know how to factor that into my theology yet. I didn't know if I believed in miracles. Um, but here I was faced with this bold statement and I so desperately wanted to believe it that I took it to heart. The next day, we were taking a little break from the work and we as a whole youth group went to a pool. And in the changing room, there was this guy named Parker who was the only guy on the trip who had never been to the youth group before. So he was someone that I'd never seen before. Which, in a sense, is the perfect test of, of reaching out to strangers is the, the one person that you've never actually seen before. And he was looking for a place to put his stuff. And I had a bag with me. And so I, I see this opportunity sort of unfolding and I realize, hey, this is that silver platter that Eric Wu was talking about yesterday that, that I was promised. And so I, I thank God for this and I go up to him and I let him put his stuff in my bag and I start to talk to him. I get to know his name, where he's from, and then after those initial questions, I became so uncomfortable again that I just left. And I was beating myself up because I felt like I had been given this silver platter opportunity and I had let God down. Now fast forward to the end of this trip, the weekend. Our reward was a camping trip. And on this camping trip, we had our third and final one-on-one. -on -one. And as Scott is reading off the names of who's being paired up, I knew that he was going to pair me with Parker. 
and he's reading off the names and he says, Parker. And then he calls me out. And in that moment, all of the pieces sort of fit together. That in my mind, I was able to see just in that moment, everything come together, how God had been working from the beginning to this point to get me to this place to say, look, I've had you in my hands this whole time. I can heal you. And in that moment, the last piece of the shell on my heart just fell off. And I went on this one-on-one, no joke, a different person. That the way that I was able to engage with him and the following day for our debrief, I opened up the group in prayer and I was going around and I was hugging everyone, which again was something that I never would have done before. I had this dramatic healing in my life this dramatic God moment where my disconnected and unemotional theology suddenly became my life-saving relationship. And from that point on, I have been devoted that I feel like I didn't have a life before. And so I I feel like my, my life, everything that I have now is a gift from God and that I need to live it out to the fullest for God. I could go on for ages and ages about my story. Um, For the sake of time, I'll I'll kind of wrap it up to some few other key points. Um, This was the the point where my faith became real to me and where I made the commitment that I will stand by the rest of my life, that, that everything I do in my life, I want it to point towards the goodness that, that God has for this world, the healing and redemption and and love, reconciliation and justice of God. I didn't have all those words yet. That was theology that developed throughout the end of high school and and college. Um, That that understanding of God as one who defends the poor and the marginalized and, and stands by them and mourns with them and suffers with them. But I did have this sense that God is love and that God is healing and restoration because I had experienced that so profoundly in my life. So I step into high school now with this deep desire to make friends and all of my passion and vigor that I brought forward was very unfruitful for several years because you can't just go up to someone and say, hey, let me share my life story with you and everything that I've ever gone through. And then you can do the same, then we're going to be friends. <laughs> Which is ironic because that's exactly what we're doing right now in this podcast. And that's also exactly how Char and I became friends. But it doesn't work for most people. It usually doesn't work, <laughs> especially in high school. Don't recommend for all of you in high school. Um, and because friendships develop over time. And, and that's something that I've since come to realize is actually really beautiful. Mm-hmm. At the time, I couldn't understand it. And so it resurfaced those old insecurities of being alone and being worthless or undesirable. That surely, as I was extending myself 
in such a vulnerable way and people weren't responding with that same kind of desire for connection that it must be me that they didn't want. And so those are themes that I've carried with me in my life, but it also really helps me uh, emotionally empathize, even if I haven't had the same experience as people um, who've gone through other experiences of oppression. To some core level, there, there is this sense of understanding of, of what it means to be isolated and targeted. On an emotional level, I have just some bare bones, bare bones level of, of understanding that is enough to make my compassion and drive authentically driven. That is not just heady, but that there is, there is a sense of, of emotional understanding. Um, another very important aspect of my life, and I've mentioned my twin sister, Hinia, many, many times. What I didn't start with, because it didn't become real for me until later, was that um, my sister is trans. Growing up, I thought she was my twin brother. And so that dynamic of competition was very much because I saw us as two halves of the same whole. In some way, my, my perspective of gender being, you know, part of that picture. And when she came out as trans to me, my response was at first very poor, where I told her, in essence, I know who you are. And that's not who you are because I, I'd lived with her for my whole life and you know I had this perspective of knowing her better than anyone else and maybe even herself but obviously that wasn't true for this aspect of her and in time I grew to realize the grave mistake that I had made and repented and in her graciousness she immediately forgave me and we've been able to grow really deep in that aspect of her identity as well. Um, and my freshman year of college, I met Byron and we immediately became very, very close. And pretty early on in that relationship, he came out to me as bi. And my reaction was also not ideal. It wasn't negative. It was more neutral. <laughs> I, I didn't, I basically said, okay, <laughs> um, which at this point now I wish I had celebrated, um, but that wasn't where I was at at that time. But with people like this in my life and other people of other marginalized identities having the graciousness to welcome me into their life where through relationship I have cultivated a deep understanding of how real systems and efforts of oppression are in our world. That has become the most important aspect of my commitment to God is, is, is a recognition that the social injustices and oppressions and systematic structural forces that keep people disunified, that keep people apart through power and privilege and oppression and suffering. That is the antithesis of God. And so to live into my faith means to be committed to fighting for justice in every facet. And like I said before, there's still so much learning. One of the most important and influential classes I took in college was um, Disability 101 because it was something that I wasn't really interested in. I had more of a focus on race and economics 
And so it didn't really strike me as the most important thing to focus on. And for that reason, I had very little understanding. And so when it was required as a prerequisite, I had my whole worldview shaken of how incredibly important it is to be aware of the oppression of, of people who are societally disabled. So when it comes to my theology and my commitment, that drive to find justice, but specifically through faith practices, as someone who has come to find such life in God as communicated through the Christian faith, to see people who share that same faith have such oppressive views mm. and to perpetuate the structures and systems of oppression that exist in this country and this world is blasphemous. And it, it bothers me more than atheists or people who are not of my faith who, who, who do this because it's personal. In my, in my personal relationship with Jesus, to see other people who claim that same relationship, but who, who live out such hate. And I don't say hate necessarily in an emotional way, but in the sense that if you can believe that someone's humanity isn't worth fighting for, to your discomfort that isn't worth you giving up your privilege in whatever way it might look like if you can believe that you have a broken view of their humanity and for that reason you have a broken view of all humanity and therefore your own and when you're disconnected from your own humanity how could you possibly be connected with the god who made you and made all people and so in some senses it's out of righteous indignation in other senses it's actually out of deep love that I really desire for other Christians to have a full connection with God, one that is stunted by their oppression and their complacency in their oppression. So for myself personally, where that takes me is a commitment to economic justice. And I say economic not to deprioritize any other systems of oppression, but to recognize that in many ways, it is the undergirding force behind all other forms of oppression. It is the teeth behind oppression. That it's not the wealthy, BIPOC, queer, femme, disabled folk who experience the greatest oppression, but those who are economically marginalized. It is in economic vulnerability that people are most susceptible to systemic forms of oppression. And so if we actively pursue healing on that front, which requires a radical redistribution of our economic means, which in fact is the second most mentioned theme in the Bible, it's an important thing to recognize that the Bible is actually in very many ways an economic text. Now, it doesn't have its own economic 
theory per se, but it does recognize how much of a temptation and how much influence and idolatry goes into yeah. money because money is power and power is access. And so that theme is so important in the Bible and it's, and it's essentially going to be the focus of my ministry moving forward. Yeah. I'm curious. I, I hear how some of your own experiences have kind of, you know, in a similar way, cracked your heart open to these topics. Um, I have two, two questions to get back to your own like experiences of theology and how you lived into these ideas or uh, experienced them yourself. So first one is legalism, mm. right? I mean, I know I would like to hear a bit from you about what your journey with legalism has been. And then in addition to that, uh, if you feel so inclined or if we have time, um, uh, works versus faith. Yeah. Gosh, these are these are themes. I feel like these are themes for another another episode. <laughs> Perhaps, but I think they're really important. If you can if you can like touch on them quickly, really quick. Okay. Um, I think they're pretty crucial to understanding who you are. This is me doing some scalpel work. Yes, no, I appreciate you're you're helping carve out my story in a way because Byron Byron is very intimately familiar with my story, and so he can help bring out some important points that I might oversee. So again, bringing your mind back to this image of this young boy and this young man who's very stubborn and very intense. And that has been very helpful in a lot of ways mm. in driving me to the intensity with which I pursue God and justice. But it's not without its faults. In large part, I can end up with uh, very simplistic or binary thinking if I'm not careful. It's less so now, but more so um, as a child and, and young adult. Where there was a sense of right and there was a sense of wrong. And my commitment to those things of rightness were of utmost importance. Mm -hmm. And Byron mentioned the term legalism. There was this very strict following of whatever rule could possibly have some relationship with quote-unquote righteousness. <laughs> the idea of being right or good or anything in the eyes of God. I no longer see that as relational. Because who forces someone to follow a certain rule set in order to be close to them? There are, are guidelines, and as Hania likes to say, a culture of values instead of laws is one that is healthy. Now it's very difficult to imagine what a society could look like without laws but just values. <laughs> a lot of our fear starts to rise, but it's actually in that fear that that legalism has its root, has its, has its power. Mm. Because it was a fear of doing wrong in the eyes of God. It was a fear of not being that perfect Christian or whatever that, that made me follow all of these rules. And I think there was some goodness to that, but ultimately being overshadowed by that fear, it wasn't honest and it wasn't authentic in its, in its relationality. It's been a journey of overcoming. There have been various points, I think most recently and in some ways most powerfully, 
I had this experience where in talking with a friend, I realized that my own perspective of identity had shifted so much. This was just this last January. I realized that over the last six years, my understanding of identity had shifted so much. I once thought that identity was something that was shaped by God and in that way permanent or static. And we could explore and uncover and discover, but it was a static thing. And I now see it as a journey of active creation that there is no such thing truly as identity because who you are now is not who you are tomorrow. It is a constant journey. It is a symphony that is being orchestrated both by you and God together in unison. There's something beautiful about that act of co-creation that doesn't actually allow for mistakes. Because a note that might sound sour now actually just turns into a different melody. And if you believe that as you're tinkering around, call it on a piano, little child stubby fingers playing your your song, (laughs) um, making just total garbage because you don't know what you're doing. But if you're sitting right next to the best pianist who's ever lived, and they are able to take your little plunking and turn it into a beautiful song, then it doesn't matter what you plunk in some ways, as long as you continue to plunk. (laughs) It is, is the active engagement of your creation, of your story, of your relationship with God that fosters that healthy and honest environment. And so, again, this was this last January, and I had this whole metamorphosis season where I was digging into and uncovering and inspecting every aspect of my life to see, is there fear involved in this identity? Am I doing this thing for legalism because of something I'm afraid of? Fear and shame. That's a big thing. Or is it something that is a genuine and honest manifestation of my love for God? And... I grew a lot through that process, and I'm sure there are many aspects of my identity that I still have to work through in that regard, but um, that was a huge moment. I, in the past, and I would say even in the present, I hold myself to a very high standard. And in part, it's because I know that I can, that I have been challenging myself since a young age, you know, as I described prior, that a lot of that was unhealthy. But I do think that there was some redemption of some of those aspects. Like I would still consider myself to be a healthy person. And while I am no longer controlling and obsessive in the way that I was prior, it is still something that I am very intentional with. And that's true of a lot of aspects of my identity, including, as some might think, a sort of Christian morality that I always have an argument for why I do or don't do something. Everything seems intentional in my life because Mm -hmm. I am in my head a lot and... I'm very intentional about trying to make sure that I am living my best life, specifically my best life for God mm. and with God. But when you've thought about something a lot, you usually have pretty well-crafted arguments, and that can make <laughs> people feel pressured into doing something. So, yeah, that is that is certainly part of my story. You've mentioned a lot about doing. What is your motivation for the, the doing that you do? Because you do a lot, and you do things. Absolutely. So again, this being a worldly placed theological podcast, (laughs) that the context is the reality that we exist in and the content is the theology that intersects with that world. Mm. That's kind of the theme of this podcast. There are a lot of Christians and in many sense, the, the church as an institution in the modern day and age has embraced this idea 
of orthodoxy, which means right belief, right thought, as being preeminent over orthopraxis, which is right action. Now, liberation theology, which again I told you that I have a proclivity toward, switches it. It flips it on its head and it says, how could you possibly say that you believe that it is right to love your neighbor, but you don't embody that love of neighbor? That, in fact, invalidates your proclaimed belief. Mm. You can't really believe that you love your neighbor if you're not living it out. Mm. If I thought my house was burning right now, if I believed that my house was burning down, I would rush out of that house. Or I would grab whatever I need to save, people I need to save inside the house, and then rush out. That's not even necessarily a conscious thought, but there is a conviction in your belief that it is something important and you act upon it. And for people who proclaim their faith in God and in Jesus Christ to be of utmost importance in their life, to hold certain beliefs about God and then to not embody those in their life, to me suggests that those beliefs are not actually as strong or convicting as they might proclaim, which in essence is an invalidation of their beliefs. They say they believe it, but they don't really believe it to the degree that they suggest. Hmm. So in my life, I have been a lot about thinking because I do think it's important to have a sense of grounding. Now, that there should be openness in that as you continually evolve. And this is for myself a continual practice of evolving my thought and my understanding as I seek to be humble and, and posture myself in humility to being wrong about anything. Hmm. But as I am convicted to something, I cannot but act upon that. In particular, as I am convinced that the racial and economic injustice in our country and in the world, but specifically in the U.S. context that I live in, that I cannot but be involved in that. And in some ways, in doing seminary right now, I am less able to attend as many protests as I was doing before. And that has had an impact on me. That has been difficult for me to process how, in some ways, this long-term investment of an education that theoretically will better prepare me and place me in, in, in a context where I can pursue the kind of ministerial call that I believe I am called to by God, which is about economic redistribution as a necessary Christian praxis. And so balancing that has been difficult. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, I've heard your story before, but even then I learned new things. Uh, I hope you learned some new things from me. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the main themes of what this whole podcast is focused on. Learning new things, talking about how they apply in a practical real world scenario. Yeah. Anything to add about that? Theology can be fun. Theology <laughs> can be fun. It's good to keep that in mind. Hey, thank you for coming to Barefoot to Emmaus. Tune in next week.